0: In our last episode of the Food Focus Podcast, we spoke to Joanne from Nourish Marketing about some consumer trends that we're seeing around food. In this episode, we switch gears a little bit and talk to Len Kahn from Contact Marketing, who works on the same report with Joanne, to talk a little bit about some producer-focused or primary agriculture-focused trends. My name is Mike von Masso, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. This episode starts with just talking about, is it worth looking at trends? Why do we even talk about trends and why should we be interested in what's happening? And then we talk about a couple of trends, feeding locally, shortening supply chains, that means bringing farmers closer to consumers, and lastly, engaging consumers and helping them understand better how food is produced. I think it's an interesting episode, an interesting conversation, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Well, hello, Len, and thanks for taking the time to join us. Good afternoon, Mike. Good to be here. Well, Len, you uh, generate with Joanne, who was a guest on our last podcast, uh, a trends report. You and I both speak and and think a lot about changes coming down in the food system. Why should we be paying attention to trends?
1: Well, I think trends, you know, there's two sides to trends. A little bit of it is prognostication, trying to figure out what's coming in the future to help us plan better. In the agricultural sector, my view is that trends tend to move a little bit more slowly than in the consumer marketplace, and that's somewhat natural. When you think about uh, agriculture, uh, it tends to be older, a little more traditional, and a little bit more conservative. So what you'll see in agriculture are fewer fads, things that come and go very quickly than in the consumer space. So you may get a few frauds, like uh, you may remember Pigeon King, but um, farmers tend to take their time, uh, the ag sector as a whole, uh, evaluate their options. So, for example, back in the day, we were doing some work for a crop protection company and we wanted to do a tour in Western Canada and we were looking for a couple of partners. The phone partner at the time, and I'm guessing this would have been the, um, you know, the mid 2000s, was Blackberry because Blackberry was the predominant phone brand in agriculture across Canada. And within two years after that, the whole market had flipped. So similar to the consumer market, but in general, these things tend to take more time. So. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's interesting because I, I wonder if you're right about about conservatism and age and, and those sorts of things in the ag world. I think there's probably also more at stake. We have an annual cycle. If we try things in that annual cycle, we can put our business at risk. Whereas if I go to the grocery store or in today's environment, order from the grocery store, I may spend 10 bucks, try something, don't like it and not order it again. So, it's much easier at the consumer level for me to try things. That said, for a processor to bring new products to the market is, is also not an insignificant risk.
1: No, that that's exactly right. Uh, interestingly, in agriculture, at times we are uh, taking the lead on certain trends. So drone technology, for example, really got its most widespread or is getting its most widespread adoption in agriculture because farmers can see tangible benefits, the same as self-driving tractors and equipment. uh, Once farmers can see it, and robotic milkers, for example, once farmers can see the benefits, they're definitely willing to adapt their businesses. But you're you're correct. The implications and uh, the financial fallout can be significant.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, we we spoke to Emily Den Haan, a dairy farmer, a few episodes ago, and one of the things they're doing with robotic milking not only bringing the technology in, but it allows them to. They have an on-farm milk processing plant. It allows them to to separate milk from specific cows because the RFID tag comes in. It knows which cow, and so they're separating milk based on a specific milk protein which name escapes me just now so they can separate put it into two separate tanks and process and sell it as two separate products so so the technology isn't just take isn't just labor saving it is actually productivity and revenue enhancing so it's interesting there are people doing some pretty cool things at the farm level
1: yeah exactly right and you know robotic milkers had been known for a while uh, slow adoption, I th- I'd say in Canada, but all of a sudden when the uh, switch flipped, uh, you saw it go fairly quickly, especially at the the top end of the market, you know, the larger producers, once they could see the tangible benefits. And some of it has to do with succession planning as well, because it's easier to convince some of to come back on the farm. Not all of us like milking cows three times a day, Mike. So once the total benefit package was known you you saw a fairly rapid adoption
0: so we're seeing we're seeing it happen it's a little bit of a show me first none of us want to be at the bleeding edge and i'm not sure that that's unique to agriculture either yep true so what i thought is we'd shift gears a little bit and do some uh, promotion of your trends report and and talk a little bit about some of the trends that you think are important in the ag part the sort of primary part of the food system, and and I think you highlighted three. Which one would you like to talk about first? Well, I'm reluctant to talk about any of them now, Mike, because when we
1: put this report together, we usually start working on it uh, back in the fall. And now I'm not sure whether any of these trends are still relevant given the current COVID-19 situation. But why don't we start with uh, Nourish Me Locally? Okay. And we can talk about... uh, what we saw at the time and how this may or may not change uh, when things renormalize, whatever that means.
0: Okay, so so tell me, what does this Nourish Me Locally mean? So one of the
1: things, Contact Marketing, uh, our company, is a full-service marketing communications company focused on agriculture. We're partnered with Joanne's company, uh, Nourish Food Marketing, and together we cover agriculture and food. So we've been doing this trend report since 2017. For the last few years, we've looked at some larger, more macro trends in agriculture. This year, we looked at three, what I'd call smaller trends. The first one was delving deeper into the idea of local diets. So Nourish Me Locally, just as the name implies, focuses on local food procurement. But what we looked at was... Institutional food habits. So, as you are aware, the expectations for eating local is growing in terms of restaurants, you know, in grocery stores. So, we wanted to take a look at what's going on on university campuses, hospitals, long care facilities, that kind of thing. So, we took a look at this one pilot project in which nine long term care facilities decided to uh, switch local, and they actually called it serving up local. And over a course of a, a of a year, they switched over nearly a quarter of the food that they procure and prepare to locally sourced. And the results have been pretty outstanding. Actually, this was over at two and a half years. Sorry, I misspoke earlier. An over six hundred percent increase in the amount of Ontario pork that was served. One hundred twenty four percent increase in fresh seasonal local produce and almost a 500% increase in overall provincially sourced meal entrees. This is important because the public sector consumes close to a $1 billion, over $800 million annually on food and beverage. So moving some of this locally can have fairly big
0: impacts for everyone concerned. So that really works well, and, and you, you're developing some demand for local products creating some value add. One of the challenges we hear a lot of times, particularly in institutional, is that budget constraint. In the trials you looked at, clearly that didn't become a binding constraint, that they managed to increase the purchase of local products without going outside of their tight sort of budgetary guidelines.
1: Yeah, and anecdotally, I don't know that we ha- I have some tangible evidence of this, but in conversations with some of the stakeholders, the price was actually within reason. So it wasn't that the institutional buyers had to pay a significant premium. It, it depends on what it is you're purchasing, but in many cases, buying local is uh, cost-effective. Some of the bigger challenges have to do with procurement and distribution because we're not necessarily used to this. We're used to procuring at the best possible price and using established distribution channels. So it definitely calls for uh, some adaptation
0: within the system. So, so it's not necessarily a price premium. I've done some, I've done some work in this, in this area too and participated in a pilot and we had the exact same experience. The issue isn't necessarily cost. It's finding the distribution infrastructure that really makes it possible to do this. And the investment isn't in the cost of procuring, but in the search costs for finding and developing those relationships. Once you've done that, once you've established a relationship with a supplier who can give you those things, it really goes relatively smoothly. It's those upfront search costs that sometimes deter people because often it means you have to buy from more than one for more than one distributor, whereas they're used to saying, "Oh, I can call that big main mainline distribution company check one form and have one delivery every day, whereas in this case, I might have to deal with two or three different distributors.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's why we flag this as a trend. It's not something that'll necessarily happen overly quickly because the institutional buyers do have to get used to doing things differently than they may have in the past so it's really critical that uh, these facilities work closely with food service providers who are also committed to sourcing at least some of their output locally and uh, that's why you know the serving up locally was viewed as a pilot project the results have been outstanding so The expectation is that you'll see more and more of this being adopted, but uh, I do believe it'll go uh, somewhat slowly. It'll be an interesting one to look back on in three to five years.
0: You know, and we're hearing in the COVID world, more people say, although I'm not sure I always agree that we should build resilience by building more local relationships. So that might actually provide a, a bit more impetus for this, especially as we get out of the acute phase and I think it's maybe a bit referring back to our earlier conversation about robotic milkers, we, we might achieve a certain amount of critical mass here and either force those mainline distributors to, to bring more local offerings so that they they stop losing business, or some of these local distribution companies get enough business that it's easier for them to deliver to to the type of institutions that are looking for those kinds of products.
1: Yeah, and and I do think this is one area where the current COVID-19 situation has the potential to drastically um, change the way people think about food. So in my lifetime, access to food has never been an, a problem. And what we're finding out now is distribution is huge and something we probably never thought about before now. The idea of not being able to get something at the store exactly when you wanted it. Uh, is jarring for many people. And although we haven't seen um, overall food shortages, we have seen shortages of things we usually buy at the grocery store that may have come over distance and even offshore. So I do think this could be one of those uh, lingering effects of the current situation.
0: So that's interesting. That's the first one. I think your, your second one you called near me. Tell me what you mean by near me as a trend.
1: Yeah, so this is actually, these two trends are somewhat related. Near me speaks to the trend of, and I'm not sure we've got a great catch all term for it right now, but farming getting closer to the consumer. So we are very much, uh, I'd say, over the last 40 years, agriculture has been pushed farther and farther away from where we live. Food that is produced is then distributed, processed, ends up in a grocery store there's a new trend that we're seeing of actually producing food in the community. So by definition, this is a smaller farming and it's, it's bubbling up organically growers, finding in or growers, urban farmers in a way, finding innovative ways to bring local food right to where the consumer is. So there are companies out there or small organizations. There's one called city beat farm and, um, you can look these all up, uh, Fresh City Farms. And here in Guelph, uh, where I'm speaking to you from, there's a company called Lady Sarah's Bounty. And these are all uh, entrepreneurs growing food right in the communities in which they live and then finding ways to, uh, to sell them to consumers in the local area. So it's, it's actually hyper-local food production, if you will.
0: So so, what are the benefits of doing this, this hyper-local production?
1: Well, I think what you're seeing is demand for it. So I guess Guelph, I've always thought, is a fairly, I don't know if it's trendy, but a little left-leaning uh, kind of city. And there's a huge demand for food that people know how it's been grown, where it's been grown, and there's a bit of a story behind it, uh, as opposed to a loaf of Wonder Bread, which, you know. There's no better toast than white bread made with Wonder Bread. So there's always the demand for that. But now there's a significant enough demand for this uh, hyper-local type of produce that these groups are springing up and taking advantage of it. Again, this is not something that is going to replace the conventional food supply, but I do believe it will augment uh, the way we've been traditionally buying groceries.
0: You anticipated my next question perfectly, Len is, is is this going to replace the sort of large integrated global food system we have or is this, is this complementary so that it, it provides those customers who want this kind of narrative-based perhaps uh, with a different climate story or something like that product to access that product and rather than replace the rest of our production?
1: Yeah, most definitely it will be a niche kind of opportunity, but one that we see growing uh, beyond Guelph and Vancouver and Toronto, which is where we're seeing um, most of the activity going on right now. But it, it is not meant to, nor are we capable of replacing the majority of our food supply. So it will find its space. There likely is a price premium, but there are a large and growing number of consumers who are willing to do that and they may not buy they won't buy all of what they need from these local entrepreneurs but they may augment their produce for example or other things that they may even eggs that they may typically buy at a grocery store they might may buy at their local urban farm or urban farm market
0: and and this might be a perfect segue into your last trend but I'm going to finish on this trend one of the benefits, I think, of of that approach or or sort of the urban production closer to where people get a better understanding of, of how their food is produced and maybe a better appreciation of it and maybe think differently about the totality of their food basket and not just the products that they're getting from these local entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, that and that is actually a really good bridge into the last trend, which is teach me. I I would say the trend over the last 40 or even 50 years is consumers know less and less about where and how their food is produced, which actually has been fine because they trust farmers. So studies that I've seen list farmers and veterinarians among the most uh, trusted of all professionals and consumers largely have trusted or indicated they trust the Canadian food safety system. Uh, you know, the regulations that are in effect to ensure that our food is safe to consume. Over the last five years, maybe five to eight years, there has been a bit of a switch and more and more people want to engage more with the food that they consume. So the last trend, Teach Me, uh, we picked up on some research done by the Canadian Centre for Food Integrity that showed, and this is a a figure that's been replicated over at least the last uh, 8 to 10 years, 90% of consumers claim that they know very little about where their food comes from, what's in it, how it's produced, but 60% of them want to know more. And that's something that's changed. I don't think for the longest time consumers wanted to know more, but now they do. 35% 35% of consumers do believe that our food system is headed in the right direction, and there's about the same number who believe it's neutral. So, you know, more positive than not. That's uh, doesn't sound like a huge number, but it's significantly better than what we see going on in the U.S. So, the Canadian food system, and especially the Canadian ag part of the food system, is in relatively good shape, but that could be eroded unless we're proactive and willing to uh speak openly about the issues that matter to consumers.
0: Yeah, and 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 I couldn't agree more. I think you and I are singing from the same song sheet there as one of the things I've argued is they trust they trust the food system. Uh, they feel good about the food they get, uh, but they have absolutely no idea how food is produced and we have to engage in a conversation to say, you know, and I think Canadian agriculture has a profoundly good story to tell, but we also have to be willing to listen and have consumers tell us, well, we're not entirely comfortable with that. Are you willing to change?
1: Yeah. And and I do think, again, this is one of those periods where this may have gone on uh, at a slow and steady pace. And I do think the current situation is causing all of us to think more about our food Uh, Now that there is discussion about, is it going to be readily available? Will I be able to get what I want, when I want it, where I want it? So that's probably a window. And I think you're going to start to see different groups step up in this period to talk about Canada's food system uh, in ways that we haven't before.
0: This has been historically a, a really tough nut to crack, is finding a way to... Provide credible information to consumers in a way that informs and engages so that they, that they want to receive that information. any sort of examples of what's gone well and what's perhaps not gone as well in the past? Uh, that's a really
1: good question. Um, you know again, I think a lot of us in as you get closer to the uh, the primary production side have been reluctant to talk. Too much about these issues because uh, there's a concern that consumers may be so far removed that where do you even begin the conversation about modern farming? How do you make robots not sound inhumane, for example? In my opinion, the companies maybe that have done it the best are companies like McDonald's that have been willing to showcase Canadian production practices. I, I can't remember their tagline. Uh, off top of my head, but it had something to do with without Canada's beef producers, there would be no beef, something along those lines. It was crafted better than that. And I think the chicken farmers have done the same. Interestingly, A and W, which took a more, um, hmm, I'll call it negative approach in saying, you know, our, our products are produced without hormones or steroids or anything like that. In a way, casting uh, doubt on the rest of the industry, but they've also found a market. So it's unclear how this will all shake out. But I do think the industry as a whole, and there are groups like the Canadian Center for Food Integrity, are trying to pull the industry together and be able to speak confidently about uh, the Canadian food system.
0: Yeah, and I think you know we've taken about as much time as I promised you we'd take, and that that's maybe a good a good place to wrap up. What, what I would add is I think the conversation is going to happen. There are lots of people who are out there willing and happy and able to provide an opinion on their perspectives on the food system. And if those of us who are involved in primary agriculture don't engage in the discussion, it's not like it's not going to happen at all. It's just that we're not going to have our voices heard, which, which sort of makes it imperative for us to find ways to communicate and engage. Yeah and
1: I, and I think at heart what has changed is consumer interest in and it's not um you know it's it's a, I'm making a general statement it's not that every Canadian consumer is intimately interested in where their food comes from my 85 almost 86 year old mother is willing to trust that you know the food she's been consuming is great it's nutritious the price is okay but um, it is that younger generation that's taking a more active interest, and I do think it's incumbent on those of us in the industry to be able to speak out, talk confidently, talk proudly about the Canadian food system.
0: yep, perfect, Len. thanks very much for taking the time before I let you go. Where can uh, people find this trends report and this discussion if they'd want if they'd like to get a little bit more detail?
1: So the trend report is available for download at nourish. Marketing. no www, just end Nourish.marketing. Sadly, not available on our website, which is contact.com because we just uh, updated our website right in the middle of a COVID crisis. So I need to uh, enable that functionality. If you want to check us out, we're k-a-h-n-t-a-c-t.com,
0: but the report itself, Nourish.marketing. Perfect. Well, thanks for taking the time, Len. I look forward to having another discussion. I think you and I have uh, lots of things we could talk about, and hopefully you'll be willing to come uh, and join us for an episode again in the future.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for the time, Mike.
0: As we wrap up another episode of Food Focus, I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thank Zachary von Massow for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report and get in touch with us. Foodfocus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions, and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, If you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast, as this helps other people find us. So, thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it, and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.